Welcome to leadership training or officer training or whatever y'all are calling this. Uh, thanks for having me back. Um, there's a PDF outline on our website under resources slash church officers for anybody who's listening to the recording. And since I didn't finish last week's lesson, Shemaine has posted an outline with answers on the website for last week. So all, and you know, there's some really good stuff. I'm really, I am so bummed out. I didn't get to that stuff. It's just, it's all such good stuff. Anyway, tonight we're going to be talking about the Trinity and Christology. So as we start, let's, uh, let's open in prayer. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we ask you to help us to speak to us this evening as we look at your self-revelation in Scripture, that as we see your transcendence, that you would not become abstract or ethereal or non-relatable in our minds, that we would grasp what those who came before us wrote about you in the early creeds and confessions, that we would come away from this teaching in awe of your majesty and your love for us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Everybody got an outline? Okay, let's go. Number one on your handout. This is the final installment of our study of classical Christian theism regarding the triunity of God. This lesson presumes that you attended the previous lesson on God's attributes. So the object of our study has been of God himself in the unsurpassable perfection of his inner being ad intra. Ad intra and work as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in his outer operations add extra in regard to creation. Tonight we'll look at the doctrines of the Trinity and Christology, and some of tonight's lesson appeared in our last lesson, and most of it's new. Number two in your handout. All theology begins with quest a question. Theologi theolog theologians only start theologi theologizing Say that fast. When a dispute arises in the life of the church, is what is to be believed? So in regard to the subject of this lesson, the question is, how can the biblical teaching that God is one, one, yet three, three, divine persons be understood? Or more specifically put, how can the one God be eternally self-differentiated as Father, Son, and Spirit without falling into the errors of modalism, tritheism, or subordinationism. So the great challenge, this is not in your outline, so the great challenge facing us with this doctrine is to see that the unity of the divine essence does not cancel out the trinity of the persons, or conversely, that the trinity of persons does not abolish the unity of the divine essence. So number three in your handout. There is no doctrine in Christian theology more fundamental or more important than the doctrine of the triune God. If our doctrine of God is off, everything, everything else will be off. This is why the current debates among evangelical and reformed theologians regarding the doctrine of God are profoundly important. These are not debates over non-essentials. These are not debates over secondary or tertiary doctrines. These debates involve the nature of God Almighty, the one who created the universe and everything in it, who reveals himself to us, who redeemed us, and calls us to worship him in spirit and truth. 
A false doctrine of God results in idolatry. So the stakes in these debates could not be any higher. <clears throat> Number four. So my motivation for teaching this class is due to the surprising amount of Trinity drift. Drift that appears in Christian books and on the internet, even from prominent Reformed theologians. This shift has enabled theologians from conservative traditions to adopt and teach doctrines that are detached from creedal or confessional orthodoxy. So these guys are, I don't know if they're, even PCA dudes, man, they are, they are teaching against the Westminster Confession. And these doctrines that they're teaching have previously been promoted only by those mostly on the fringes of the faith. So many evangelical and Reformed theologians have abandoned Christian, classical Christian theism. Number five, so what is classical Christian theism? It's a doctrine of God marked by a strong commitment to the doctrines of divineity, immutability, impassibility, simplicity, Simplicity, eternity, and the unity of the divine persons. Classical Christian theism is the biblical doctrine of God found in the great creeds of the church. It's the biblical doctrine of God defended by the Reformed theologians of the 16th and 17th centuries. The Westminster Confession of Faith, for example, clearly and concisely states the classical Christian doctrine of God in chapter 2 of the Westminster Confession of God and the Holy Trinity. And one of the underlying concepts of CCT is that God, because of his perfection, does not derive any aspect of his being from outside himself and is in not any way caused to be. So five, six, why is this important? Partly because you're an officer training, because during their ordination, potential elders and deacons will be asked, do you sincerely receive and adopt the confession of faith and catechisms of this church as containing the system of doctrine taught in the Holy Scriptures? And do you further promise that if at any time you find yourself out of accord with any of the fundamentals of this system of doctrine, you will on your own initiative make known to your session the change which has taken place in your views since the assumption of this ordination vow? So when they're asked, when you're asked that question, you can say yes. Can you really say yes? Do you have you really read it? Do you really know what the confession of faith and the catechism say? I mean, some of the stuff I'm teaching tonight is really just an elaboration of what you see in the Westminster Confession. And also it's important because you, as elders, deacons, and leaders in the church, will be asked to approve books and studies for women's or men's study groups. And you will have folks join Spring Meadows that bring a lot of doctrinal baggage from their previous church. So it's good to know where they're coming from, including any to adhere to the list of Trinitarian and Christological errors we will discuss at the end of this lesson. You should study genuine orthodoxy to the point where it becomes reflexive to spot a counterfeit. Okay, Know the real thing so that you can spot a counterfeit. So from my uh, experience on the session here at Spring Meadows, we've seen things like hyperpreterism, federal vision, theonomy, dispensationalism, hyper-Calvinism, 
And I mean, a lot of these I never even heard before. People came in and I go, these people are speaking a different language than us. But, uh, you know, hopefully by grasping some of the stuff we're going to talk about tonight, you'll be able to spot the counterfeits, okay? So let's start with the oneness of God, the unity. And for the sake of limited time, uh, we're going to keep this part brief. And just a lot of it was covered last lesson on the oneness of God. So number seven, Christians are monotheists. Monotheists. The belief that there is only one God. Question, in what respect is God one? Answer, in respect of his nature and being. One essence, one divinity, one power, one will, one intellect, one consciousness, one energy, one authority, one dominion, one sovereignty. Number eight. Scripture reveals that there are, in that one divine essence, three eternal distinctions. And by the way, one of the things I'm trying to do for you guys is to give you some Trinitarian grammar. I mean, word like distinctions, that's, that's an important word when you're talking about the Trinity, okay? So three eternal distinctions that are described as persons known as the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. All three have identical attributes, and therefore they are one. Not merely one in substance or essence, but one in purpose, operation, and will. There are not three wills. What would we call that? Tritheism. Very good. Thank you. Number nine. Each person of the Godhead is fully God, but God is one, says the Shema. The Shema. S-H-E-M-A. That's the Hebrew word for here. Because it's the first word in Deuteronomy 6.4. Here, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Capital S-H-E-M-A. It's the prayer that uh, Jewish people say in the morning when they get up and night before they go to bed. They say the Shema. So, the way to explain how threeness remains one is the attribute of divine simplicity, which we covered last week which says that God is not composite, God is not divided, God is not divisible into separate components or dissolvable into pieces. The doctrine of divine simplicity protects the integrity and unity of God's essence and prevents us calling personality or personhood a divine attribute. And it prevents us from collapsing into tritheism. We must hold on to the unity of the divine essence as well as the distinction of persons. God is one, but he is to be worshipped as three persons. Everybody okay with that so far? Okay, if you're good with unity, let's move to Trinity. So, we have often been guilty, and I have been guilty, of keeping the doctrine of the Trinity on the shelf until it provides useful for defeating opponents. Here comes the Jehovah's Witnesses, Quick, let's review the Trinity doctrine. Okay. Hopefully, after tonight's lesson, you, you won't need to dust it off. Number 10. The Christian formula for the Trinity is that God is one in essence. Essence. And by the way, it's a synonym for uh, nature or being. Okay, so one in essence and three in persons. Christianity stands or falls with the doctrine of the Trinity. This formula expresses three crucial truths. One, 
The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are distinct persons. You know what's interesting about this, and one of the things I really learned in my study this time is that, and I'll go back to this in a second, but when you go back to the formation of the early creeds, everybody was presuming that God was one, even the Arians, all, all the heresies were presuming God is one. And you see today, I've been itching to tell you this because it's been floating around in my head. We start with the presumption that God is three. And we have a real hard time. And this is where all the heresy comes in. Well, how does that make God one? Okay. So I, I have my number one backwards here. I have the Trinity first. Number one, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are distinct persons. Two, each person is fully God, their glory equal, and their majesty co-eternal. Three, there is only one God. All three persons of the Trinity must be described as having not only co-essence, but also co-equality and co-existence. <clears throat> Number 11. The Trinity has emerged as the touchstone and non-negotiable truth of Christian orthodoxy. What does orthodoxy mean? Huh? Yeah, yeah. Or straight, you know, like orthodontist, straight teeth, orthodoxy, straight... No, right belief, very good. Um... It's the non-negotiable truth of Christian orthodoxy. No truth of the Christian faith is more important for the Christian life and the way of salvation. However, the Holy Trinity is a perplexing mystery and easy explanations are always wrong. So that leads to number 12. So let's talk about Trinitarian analogies. In his Trinitarian mode of being, God is unique. And as there is nothing in the universe like him in this respect, so there is nothing in creation that can help us to comprehend him. So the first and only rule of, of Trinitarian analogies, please, please don't do them. If, if you think that perhaps a clover leaf, three petals in one leaf, or H2O, water, ice, and gas, or a family man, one man who is father, son, and brother are exceptions, I would encourage you to go back and read the first rule of bluff. And if you haven't seen uh, St. Patrick's bad, bad Analogies on YouTube, it is hilarious. It is, it's really good. Um, number 13. The doctrine of the Trinity actually arose in order to affirm some, certain things about the divinity, the divinity of Christ, to answer the question, who is Jesus? And it arose against a background assumption that God is one, as I told you earlier. So the doctrine of the Trinity is revealed to us in Scripture in the incarnation of God, the Son, and the outpouring of God, the Holy Spirit, ad extra. What's that mean, ad extra? External, the external acts, okay? That's, it's really opera ad extra. Opera means work. Yes, out. Extra means external. So um, that's where the doctrine of the Trinity is revealed to us in Scripture with the coming of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. So uh, again, we're studying grammar here. Threeness. For most Christians, and I uh, include members of Reformed churches, the Trinity is often an abstruse or obscure mathematical puzzle. 
Number 14, here's a simple model of the Trinity. One what? Essence. And three whose? Persons. One what? What? The word Trinity is not found in the Bible. But that doesn't mean that the concept is not there. The word Bible is not in the Bible either, but we use it anyway. A lot of words not in the Bible. Number 15, there is a difference between divisions in the Godhead and distinctions in the Godhead. The Father, Son, and Spirit are not divisions or composite parts in the Godhead. They don't combine up together to add up to God. That's partialism. That's one of the ones in St. Patrick's um, on YouTube. So God is not like a three-piece pizza. The three persons are distinctions, not divisions. And that one God, each one being fully God. That's why the doctrine of divine simplicity is so important. Okay, yes? So, Indeed. I think me and you got into an argument one time when I said one can be divided by zero an infinite number of times and you told me no. Okay, we'll talk about it later. This is not a math lesson. Yes. First blank is what? W-H-A-T. One what? The what is his essence. And the first blank in 15 is distinctions. That's the word I really want you to get in your vocabulary. 16, in our last lesson, we talked about the importance of differentiating the acts of the Trinitarian persons in their ontological being, their eternal interrelations ad intra. From their economical doing, their common outward actions toward creation ad extra. Okay? And the thing we want to avoid there, which is the mistake that is typically made, where people look at the Trinity ad extra, particularly see Jesus with a divine and a human nature, and people will, where Jesus is talking and says, you know, I do whatever the Father tells me. I follow the Father. You know, I'm, I'm subordinate. Well, in his human nature, yes. But the thing we don't want to do is project ad extra up to ad intra. And primarily, that's what we're talking about. When we talk about God, we're going to talk about God ad extra, how he acts in creation. But when we're trying to figure out who he is, uh, we're looking at his um, eternal inner life with, you know, God himself. Everybody good on that? Any questions? <clears throat> That's right. That's right. He was showing them the perichoresis. Who remembers what perichoresis means? Peri 
means like, okay, it's like around, okay, like a periscope, a periscope goes around, increases his choreography, so it's called to dance around, the three persons of the Trinity are dancing around, that's kind of a visual image, okay, enough of that. Okay, number 17 is, this is because there is a complete equality within the ontological trinity ad intra, and yet there is clearly an ordering with that, within the economic trinity ad extra, with the incarnate son taking the position of, a position of submission to the Father. So again, we don't project from doing up to being when discussing the trinity. So example, number 18. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit share one substance, one essence, one nature, one being, inequality, then no inequality may exist among them. Although, and when I say the word ontological, what does that mean? Anybody know it? Hmm? Being. It means in being. This, so ontology is the study of being. So when we say ontological, there can be no ontological subordination. Ontologically, no subordination between three persons. So it leaves an important question unanswered. If the divine persons possess one nature, in what sense and on what basis are they distinct? Distinct. So we're going to talk about distinctions. Number 19, in the Latin church, theologians use the, theologians use the word persona to mean something similar to hypostasis. The word hypostasis is a Greek word meaning hypo, which means under, you know, like hypodermic, under the skin, and stasis, which means to stand. Literally, to stand under. They defined person as an individual substance of a rational nature. In English, we use the word person. Okay, so if a hypostasis is a person... Who can explain to me how that relates to the hypostatic union? What is the hypostatic union? Yeah. Yeah, that's the... It's the union of two natures in one person. Hypostatic. The hypostatic union of the two natures. That's another good one. A good use of that word hypostasis. <coughs> yes. No, we're talking ad intra. So the human nature is subordinate. Of course. That's what I said in number 17, within the economic trinity with the incarnate son taking the position of submission. Okay, so we don't project from being up to doing. Okay. Number 20. Applied to the Trinity, God has one undivided nature that exists. In, hmm? I'm sorry, what? Oh. <laughs> yeah, you have exists. That subsists. 
And the key word is exists. Subsists means exists. Sometimes I'll write this stuff and then I go to my handout and I change it there and I don't come back here. So it exists in three hypostases or persons. God does not have three natures. He has one nature in three persons. Another word we talked about last time is often used instead of person is subsistence, which comes from the Latin sub, which means under, you know, like a submarine, underwater. And sisto, which means to stand, meaning to stand under. Each subsisting person stands under the essence of the one God. So it's kind of amazing, you know, subsistence and hypostasis both being exactly the same thing. These are... They exist under the nature of the one God, or they stand under. So, 21, the description persons should not be understood as we might analyze the term in common usage today, where in order to be a person, you must be a unique and a discrete individual, separated from other persons with a unique consciousness. C-O-N-S-C-I-O-U-S-N-E-S-S. -S -S. With a unique consciousness and will. By the term person, we mean a distinct, self-aware, subsistent, subsistence, not consciousness. Twenty-two. In the Trinity, consciousness, will, and emotion, etc., are all proper to the nature, to the essence, not to a person. The Father does not think one thing while the Son thinks another. The Son does not will one thing and the Spirit another. There is no individual self-consciousness. Everything is collective because the persons are the same being. Being. You know, an example of that is we say, uh, we talk about God's will. Singular, one will. We don't say God's wills. Okay, does that help? It's God's will. You can say, well, gosh, if the Holy Spirit agrees with Jesus, maybe we can have it. No. It's one will. Okay? It's doctrine of simplicity. Um, 23. A person is an agent. That's a person who acts. It's an actor. A who and a nature is that by a person is that by which a person acts. That set of equipment. Equipment. So the equipment is in the nature. Employed by a person to carry out the actions he perform, performs. Again, the Trinity is one what, or essence, and three whose agents or persons. Tra traditionally, everybody good? Traditionally, the way the persons in the Godhead have been distinguished ad intra is not by roles, or eternal relations of authority, of submission, but by the personal properties. Personal properties of paternity, filiation, inspiration. To put it another way, the Father is the Father and not the Son or the Spirit. The Son is the Son and not the Father is Spirit. And the Spirit is Spirit and not the Father or the Son. By virtue of and these are the th three big things. The by virtue of the Father's unbegottenness is Father, the Son's generation from the Father, 
and the Spirit's procession or inspiration from the Father and the Son. This is usually called the processional order. Okay? Father's unbegotten, Son is begotten, Spirit proceeds. And I want to stop here and just... Uh, you may not have difficulties with this, but the last time I taught God's attributes, this was new to me. I thought if I come here to Spring Meadows Sunday School and I tell people the only way, the only distinction in the three persons is unbegottenness, begottenness, inspiration. I said, they're not going to like that. Because you know why? Because I didn't like it. I mean, this is, this is a, I wanted more. I wanted more separation ad intra in the three persons. Maybe this is easy for you, but I think I'm one of those people who really suffers from a bad case of social Trinitarianism where I want, I want, I want distinct wills. And I sat there, I, I, how can I teach that? But it's important. That's it. That's the distinction ad intra. Unbegottenness, begottenness, and inspiration or procession. Everybody good with that? Okay. So, the three persons, number 25, are also distinguished by their economic ad extra voluntarily willed modes of operation in the one work of the triune God. The Father works by the Son, and the Son works together with the Father through the Holy Spirit. Add extra. You might, you might see this referred to sometimes, for if, like if you're doing research, just Google divine missions, okay? Divine missions, but um, um, this is their modes of operation, add extra. 26. The three persons are distinguished not by essence or perfections or attributes, but by their personal properties ad intra, and two, by the way in which the works of the triune God are presented to us in Scripture as coming from the Father through the Son and the Holy Spirit ad extra. So the Father comes to us through the Son and in the Spirit, and we come to the Father through the Son and in the Spirit. Everybody good? 27, the doctrine of inseparable operations teaches that because the three persons of the Trinity are one God, each person of the Trinity is operative, operative in all God's external works opera ad extra from creation through redemption to consummation um, even though one of the persons may be in the forefront um, I really learned a lot this time doing a lot of reading people will say the operation of the Father, Son and the Holy Spirit is what caused that action caused the incarnation. But the incarnation terminated on the one person of Christ. That's just that's the way they talk about stuff like this. Okay? So anything that happens in the Bible, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the reason, this is not in your handout, so the reason we know the Father, Son, Holy Spirit 
distinction is because the Father sent the Son and the Holy Spirit. Divine missions, what people would call that. The distinction among the three persons were revealed in the act of the Son and the Spirit coming to be among us for our salvation ad extra. <clears throat> the hypostatic distinction between the Father and Son is not determined by the Father's eternal authority or of the Son's eternal submission as stated by the unorthodox doctrine known as the eternal submission of the Son. We're going to talk a little bit about that in the lesson. Authority and obedience are not what constitutes the Father or Father or the Son as Son. Eternal generation is what constitutes the Son as Son. And we're going to talk about eternal generation in a couple minutes here. But 29. So we should avoid mental pictures of the Trinity as if there are three people sitting around a boardroom table deciding who does what in the Pactum Salutis. What's the Pactum Salutis? Covenant of Grace. Where can you find it? You should know this. This is an easy one to remember. Ephesians 1.4. You know? Isn't that your song, Terry? How's, how do the words go for the Pactum Salutis? Before the foundation. Yeah, yeah, very good. Okay. So in the Pactum, we are not somehow to think of God as now having three distinct wills. That is error, very bad error. We are to think of God in his one essential and undivided will, which is synonymous with his essence, as freely determining that the Son would become man according to the suitability of relation between the three persons. And the reason I bring this up is there are a lot of people out there who really want the Son to be eternally subordinate to the Father. And they always bring up the Pactum Salutis. When the Pactum Salutis sent the Father tell, send the Son, Son, go. Aye, aye, Captain, no. Okay, there's one will. Man, you haven't been on the internet, have you? I'm telling you, there is, you can go to any argument. Pardon me? They bring it, people who believe in the eternal submission of the Son bring it up every time. I've seen it a hundred times in a hundred articles, particularly from Wayne Grudem. So we'll talk about that in a minute. Huh? 28, agency. Oh, I haven't got to 28 yet. Oh, I skipped it. Man, how could I skip this one? Dude, this is a good one. Summarizing his discussion of agency, which is action, ad extra, of the Trinity, Augustine explains, listen to this closely, because I'm going to ask you what you think he means by this at the end. The Father made the world, Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. The Son made the world, John 1, 1 and 3. The Holy Spirit made the world, John 1, 1 to 2. Genesis. So if there are three gods, there are three worlds. If there is one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one will was made by the Father through the Son in the Holy Spirit. So, what is he saying about the agency of the Trinity? It's one. 
Okay, one eight, everything, everything add extra. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I mean, there's just a lot of examples. Like you can read the Bible where the Father caused the resurrection, or Christ caused the resurrection, or the Holy Spirit caused the resurrection. All in different parts of the Bible. So, anyway, um, I didn't do. Th I did twenty nine, right? Okay, we're on thirty. So they share one mind and will, yet each person is self-aware. Self-aware. The father knows he's the father, yet he knows, and he knows the other two persons, and he knows of the other two persons as distinct, yet one with him, and so on. Proof texts. We're not going to... We're not going to go into proof text. I just want to put these in here so that you would have something. That's, you know, I talk about, I wish there were one verse that said God is one being, but the Trinity is not verse-sized. There's a handful of verses that name in one place. There's some pretty good three-verse passages, and there's verses all over the place that speak of Father and Son and Holy Spirit in the same breath. But now let's move to the eternal generation of the Son. Number 31, the church has held that the Father begat, begat the Son in an eternity before the creation of time. This is expressed in the Constantinople Nicene Creed of 381, and it's repeated in later confessions such as the Westminster Confession of Faith, 2.3. Now, no text exists that actually says the Son is eternally generated or begotten, but nevertheless, there is much in Scripture that suggests this idea and nothing that excludes it. For example, John 5.26, which says, As the Father has life in himself, and what attribute is that, by the way? Aseity. Okay? So, as the Father has life in himself, so he has given the Son to have life in himself. So through generation, the Son receives the life. That is the nature or substance of the Father. Number 32. The Father eternally and incomprehensibly communicates the divine essence to the Son without division or change so that the Son shares an equality of nature with the Father yet is also distinct from the Father. As the Nicene Creed reads, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, the only begotten, that is, of the essence of the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not bade, being of one substance with the Father. Okay, It's the doctrine of simplicity. Number 33. <clears throat> the Son's generation is beyond physical. Eternal. Eternal generation is not a movement from non-being into existence, existence, but rather the consequence of an unchanging activity in the divine essence. No new essence is generated. Hence, the Son's deity being communicated from the Father is not derived from another essence, but is identical, identical to the Father's essence, and therefore, the Son is ase in nature. So how, Augustine asks, did the Father receive life in himself? Aseity. 
His answer is both simple and profound. The Father begat the Son. Everybody good with that stuff? Any questions? Okay. Let's move on. Boy, we're doing good tonight. We're going to make it through the lesson, I think. Okay. Oh, I've got answers. We're going to go to the incarnation in Jesus. Number 34. No import, more important question arises than the one Jesus asked his disciples. Who do you say that I am? Each century from the time of Christ and the apostles onward has witnessed one or more aberrant views. A-B-E-R-R-A-N-T. Aberrant views. In fact, the early church battled long and hard before coming to a concise, accurate description of the person of Christ at the Chalcin Council of Chalcedon, which Rick Vitanovitz recently taught in. And by the way, i got to say that precision is not optional when you're talking about this stuff. Richard, do you remember when we were going through G.I. Packer's Knowledge of God and we were talking about some of the sloppiness and he was... There was some real sloppiness there, man, and it almost, it almost made it look like there's a differentiation of submission between the Son and Intra. I don't think Packer meant to do that, but I think... It, I think a lot of the sloppiness in the way people talk and the way people imagine things leads them to not have a correct view of the oneness of God or the, what the threeness is. So and that's really what I'm trying to do here is I'm trying to give you guys some helpful words for pre precision. And this is, this is more, every time I teach this, I go, I go to another... Um, level of precision and they go why didn't i do that i didn't know i i there's so much out there but some of this stuff you learn from some of these journals that are and they're full of you know multi-syllable words and you can hardly read a paragraph without having to read it 10 times but that's where a lot of this stuff is and it's not being communicated to um everyday Christians, I mean, but you guys are leaders. You really need to know this stuff. Okay, so 35. The word incarnation equals took flesh. When I used to teach children Sunday school, I used to tell them carne means meat. Chili con carne, carne seca, carne asada, meat. The incarnation means took meat, took flesh. It's derived from the Latin in and caro, flesh, mean clothed in the flesh. The word incarnation does not occur in the Bible, but we have examples of the concept in Romans 8, 3. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. 36. The doctrine of the Trinity declares that the man Jesus is truly divine. Divine. The doctrine of the incarnation declares that the divine, divine Jesus is truly human. 37. So at Christmas, we celebrate something quite mind-boggling. God really entered our time and space opera ad extra. The eternal becomes temporal. Temporal. 
the infinite becomes finite. The word that created all things becomes flesh. The incarnation has been called the miracle of all miracles because here we are told that omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence, eternalness, and holiness dwell in a tiny baby. This makes Santa coming down a chimney seem like a logistical cakewalk. I thought that was kind of funny. Logistical. <clears throat> the, in the incarnation should leave us or not. Why? Because as Herman Bavink says, it is completely incomprehensible to us how God can reveal himself and to some extent make himself known in created beings. Eternity in time, immensity in space, infinity in the finite, immutability in change, being in becoming, the all, as it were, in that which is nothing. The mystery cannot be comprehended. It can only be gratefully acknowledged. 38. Jesus is fully man. The doctrine is found in many texts who speak of Jesus as coming in the flesh, being sent in the flesh, appearing in the flesh, suffered in the flesh, died in the flesh, made peace by abolishing in flesh the enmity, made, reconcil re made reconciliation in the body of his flesh. In some, the word became flesh. The son needed a body to offer his body for us and to represent, represent us as the second Adam. He needed a body in order that his resurrection body might be the prototype of our resurrection bodies. Christ assumed our whole human nature to heal it wholly, atone for it wholly, and crown it wholly with honor. 39. Jesus is fully God. Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. The Apostle Paul declares, for in him the whole fullness of deity Deity dwells bodily. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. And to Philip, who sought a demonstration of glory, Jesus answered, Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And for, it, for it, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So we see that Christ doesn't merely resemble God. He doesn't merely love with the love that God loves or show compassion with the compassion that God has or live the way God would, but actually is himself the most high God. 40. The Son of God became in time, ad extra, what he eternally was not. He did not cease to be what he eternally was, ad intra, but he began to be what he was not. 41. In order to save us, God had to become man. The Son assumed a genuine human nature, a personless body, mind, mind, will, and soul. In order to perfectly obey God's law, in order to fulfill the covenant of works, suffer and die on the cross as a vicarious atonement for us and rise again victorious over Satan, sin, and death. Even now, the God-man sits enthroned at the right hand of God, interacting and applying redemption to his people. I found, 42, I found the Heidelberg Catechism quite helpful in its concise explanation. Question 16 asks, Why must he be a true and righteous man? 
The answer is, he must be a true man because the justice of God requires that the same human nature, which is sin, should pay for sin. He must be a righteous man because one who himself is a sinner cannot pay for others. Question 17 asks, why must he also be true God? And the answer is, so that by the power of divinity, he might bear the weight of God's anger in his humanity and earn for us and restore to us righteousness in life. Any questions? Okay. We're going to shift gears to kenosis. 43. One might be tempted to draw the faulty conclusion that a change occurred in God when the second person of the Godhead took to himself a true body and a reasonable soul and mind being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Yet the scriptures are clear that God does not and cannot change. Which doctrine is that? Which attribute? Immutability. Very good. 44. When the Word became flesh, he did not cease to be the Word. The Word veiled. V-E-I-L-E-D. The Word veiled hid and voluntarily restricted the use of certain divine powers and prerogatives. He willingly cloaked his glory under the veil of his human nature that he took upon himself. It's not that the divine nature stops being divine in order to become human, because God cannot cease to be God. In other words, when the Word became flesh, he did not commit divine suicide. 45, Philippians 2.7 says, Jesus emptied himself. That's what it says in the NASB. The ESV is worded, he made himself nothing. These are both legitimate translations of the Greek verb kino. Is that how you pronounce that, Tim? Kino. But they must be interpreted carefully in the way that does not contradict. Kino is the basis for kenosis. 46. And I'll, I'll never forget this. I'm going to tell you a story on myself. Huh? I think this is when I was teaching the Shorter Catechism at Spring Meadows. I taught for the Shorter Catechism for about a whole year. And I don't even remember which part of the um, Shorter Catechism we were on, but... You know, I'm standing up there like the Bible answer man, and Aaron Gambo is sitting in the back, and he raises his hand. He goes, what do you think about kenosis? I had never heard the word. I'm going, I don't know. I'll have to get back to you later on that one. <laughs> you know, but, um, but you're hearing it now, so you'll be experts like I wasn't. An increasingly prevalent teaching in evangelical circles particularly in charismatic circles, is the doctrine of kenosis. The doctrine of kenosis is the heretical teaching that in the Incarnation, the Son divested, divested himself of some or all attributes of deity, making him less than fully divine, and so not truly divine. The emptying of himself referred to in Philippians 2.7 is best thought not as a reduction in the Godhead to smooth out the mystery I mean, there's a lot of mystery in this stuff. I mean, this is, this is where heresy usually jumps in, to smooth out the mystery. 
but as the veiling of the word's glory in the outworking of the economy of redemption. 47. Heretical canonicism sees the incarnation as God minus. Scripture teaches that the incarnation was God plus. There was no vacancy in the Trinity during our Lord's earthly ministry. The incarnation was a miracle of addition, not subtraction. Jesus took on humanity. He didn't divest himself of deity. Everybody okay? You don't want to try to stop the answer man up here? Yeah, oneness, and we're going to talk a bit about oneness Pentecostals. They're basically modalists. By the way, there's like five oneness Pentecostal churches in Las Vegas. Total heretic, heretics. Okay. Okay. We're good with that. Let's go to one person, two natures. 48. So when we think about the incarnation, we don't want to get the two natures mixed up and think Jesus had a deified human nature, deified, or a humanized divine nature. We can distinguish them, but we can't tear them apart because they exist in perfect unity. <clears throat> 49. Jesus' divine nature, his essence, did not take on the human nature, nor did the divine nature take on another person, but rather a divine person took on a personless human nature. So here... You have the person who came with a divine nature. Okay? He took on a human nature. It's kind of a, a graph to help understand. So, Christ is only one. This is 50. Christ is only one person. Christ has two natures. Each nature is full and complete. Christ is not partially God and partially man. Each nature remains distinct. Christ has one who, one person, and two what's, natures. Fully God and fully man. So the natures only talk. They only talk to the person. We'll get to that in a second. 51. Both natures of Christ are presented as I. Not only do the scriptures never distinguish between an I and you in Christ, as is done in the Trinity, Trinity, but the scriptures explicitly refer to both natures as I, thus proving they're a single individual. For example, we read in John 18.37, Pilate therefore said to him, So, are you a king? Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. 
So Jesus seems to be referring to his two natures in saying that I have been born and I have come into the world. His human nature was born, whereas his divine nature came into the world. Yet Jesus speaks of both natures as I. 52, the doctrine of communication of attributes. Whatever we can say about Christ's human nature, we can say about his person. Whatever we can say about his divine nature, we can say about the person. Um, Christ's human nature stayed human, and Christ's divine nature stayed divine. And those two natures did not communicate attributes to each other, but rather to the person of Christ. This is known as the hypostatic union. By the way, if you've ever wondered, one of the things that distinguishes us from Lutherans is we say the divine nature talks to the person and the human nature talks to the person, but we say that the natures don't talk to each other. Lutherans say they do. This is how Lutherans say that Christ is physically present because Christ's body is now divine. It can be everywhere. Okay? Yes, that's... Huh? That's Lutheranism for you. They actually have a slur for Reformed people. They call us extra-Calvinisticusts. Look it up. It has something to do with this, I guess. Huh? Yeah, I know. I know, I'm just saying that's the slur. Huh? It does. I don't know. You know, people go against the creeds a lot. And especially these days, they go against the confessions and the creeds a lot. So, I don't know. I don't know, Ron. Okay, so the Reformed traditions, uh, classic distinctive is that God is always and ever God, and man is always and ever man. Even in the unity of Christ, the two natures remain unmixed. This means that although the attributes of either nature can be and are predicated of the one person, the communication of each attribute are not to be predicated on the other nature, like Lutherans do, where the human body becomes ubiquitous. Okay. 53, some Christians seem to imagine that Christ's divine nature takes the place of his human soul. This idea, though well-intentioned, is wrong. Christ was a perfect man with a rational soul as the intermediate principle of his moral actions. In other words, Christ had a human self-consciousness. The word took on a personless mind, soul, and will because the word is the person. Okay? That's why I say he took on a personless body. Because he was the person. So, 54. The important concept of this orthodox doctrine is that whatever Christ did, 
he did as a whole person. Okay. For instance, when his human body was beaten, tortured, and died, he suffered as a whole person. So even though God cannot be killed, it can be, be said that God died for, died for our sins. And I put it as it were. One of my favorite hymns says, Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Um, but if you ask the question, like, who stood up in the cross? That's the God-man on the cross. The God-man. But if you say, in what mode was his suffering? His human nature suffered. Okay? One of the arguments me and Tim have had quite often is regarding the impeccability of Christ. I've changed my mind on it. The human nature was able to sin, but because it was hooked up to the divine nature, no, it couldn't. It was physically impossible. Even though his human nature was able to, as a person hooked up to the divine nature, he was impeccable, not able to sin. <laughs> Okay. 55. God the Son is ubiquitous, immense, filling everything with all of himself always, or he's in a fixed geographical location bodily. Christ is infinite, or Christ is finite. He existed from all eternity, or he was born in Bethlehem. He is impassable, or he suffered on our behalf. When the Word once became flesh, he became flesh forever. After his earthly life, death, and resurrection, Jesus did not divest himself of the flesh or cease to be a man. He is a man right now at the right hand of God, and he always will be the God-man. Forever. Okay. This is kind of a new one to me, too. I... I never really realized, number 57, that Christ's humanity, body, soul, and mind does not get lost in or gobbled up by his divinity. Because of this, Christ's humanity needed the Holy Spirit in order to have communion with God. John Calvin said, Christ works through the Spirit, and the Holy Spirit works through Christ. Um, 58. Christ's inseparable companion during his earthly ministry as a true man was the Holy Spirit. We know that he received the Spirit without measure. Without measure. Therefore, at all of the major events in the life of Christ, the Holy Spirit took a prominent role. In the New Testament, we read of many references to the Holy Spirit on Holy Spirit's work on Christ, beginning with the Incarnation, to his baptism to his wilderness temptation, to his preaching, to the performance of miracles, to his death, to his resurrection, and to his ascension and enthronement. We find that the Holy Spirit was Christ's inseparable companion, never leaving him or forsaking him once. The Spirit was a gift given to him from the Father so that Jesus could, as a true human, obey and please the Father. 59. Christ chose not to re 
regard his equality with God as something to exploit or take advantage of. Therefore, in complete dependence on the Holy Spirit, Christ obeyed his Father perfectly without grasping at his own divine nature. You know, he, does, he never says, hey man, give me some of that divine mojo, man. I'm, I'm in a real fix here. I'm in a pickle. It was the Holy Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit who supported him. In fact, um, as John Owen argued, whatever the Son of God did by the human nature, he did it by the Holy Spirit. And this is, this is what was new to me. Is, is John Owen says, um, after the incarnation, the divine nature never interacted with the human nature. Everything we see in the New Testament, miracles, everything, was the full measure of the Holy Spirit. Have you ever read that before, Tim? Yeah, it's kind of a new one on me. But I've actually read it in three places in the last couple of days. It's kind of, a lot of that's hooked up to the doctrine of inseparable operations. And... Okay, anybody have any questions? Because now we're going to go to Christological errors. Scott. 55. 55 is he suffered for on our behalf. Well, it could be, yeah, yeah. You could say and, or you could say or. These aren't my words. I ripped them off from somebody else. Okay, no questions? Let's move on to modern-day Trinitarian and Christological errors. This is number 60. When the fullness of God's self-revelation of Scripture is not taken into account, Heresy is the result. Those who emphasize the oneness of God to the neglect of what Scripture teaches regarding the deity of the three persons fall into errors such as modalism, also known as Sabellianism or oneness Pentecostalism, the belief that the members of the Trinity are not three distinct persons, but three different aspects of the same person, the shapeshifter, or they fall into subordinationism, the belief that the Son and Holy Spirit are lesser in being than the Father. Or Arianism, or Jehovah's Witnesses, the belief that Jesus and the Holy Spirit are not persons of the Godhead, but instead later creations of God the Father. And this is one of the things I told you earlier. Is nevertheless, each of these errors emphasized monotheism. Today, we start with the Trinity and we have trouble getting back to the oneness. 61, in the 20th century... In place of the orthodox doctrine of classical Christian theism, a substitute has arisen that said, not only does God change the world, but also the world changes God. These can be grouped together under to the label relational theism. Relational theism. The idea of God is one of a number. This idea of God is one of a number of theologies, including social trinitarianism, theistic mutualism, theistic personalism, open theism and process theology. And then we also have a new form of subordinationism which suggests it's actually semi-arianism which suggests that Jesus is inferior to the Father in an ad intra hierarchy. 
Okay, first we're going to take a look at tritheism. One of the major Trinitarian errors to rise up in the 20th century is the doctrine of the social trinity. This doctrine took the term person way too far and generated into all-out heresy. The belief here is that the different divine persons do their own thing, each having their own will, each being responsible for certain effects. The social trinity doctrine essentially states that the term person in the doctrine of the trinity should be seen as closely resembling human personhood as possible. Social Trinitarianism promotes separate centers of consciousness, separate, filled with distinct knowledge sets, separate wills that must be harmonized by agreement, and separate roles to play in a shared enterprise called the life of God. Many evangelicals in our day have been all too willing to trade the doctrine of Trinitarian simplicity for tritheism. If you're having a hard time with this lesson, it uh, may be due to the influence of tr social Trinitarianism, and I know I've been a victim of this thinking. You know, I had all, no one ever said, no one, I don't remember anybody ever telling me until I read it that there's one will in God. But, yeah. One will, yeah. I said it about 10 times in this lesson. I know because it irritates people when I say it. That's why I say it so much. <clears throat> okay, next. Let's move on to what's known as theistic mutualism or personalism. Theistic mutualism has infiltrated evangelical and reformed theology, gradually displacing classical Christian theism. In an effort to portray God as more relatable, theistic mutualists insist that God is involved in a genuine give-and-take relationship with his creatures. Mutualism denotes a symbiotic relationship. S-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-C. A symbiotic relationship in which both parties God and man derive something from, from each other. In such a relation, it is required that each party be capable of being ontologically. Onto, then logically. That means moved in, in being, being. In being moved or acted upon by the other. This error rejects or radically redefines divine attributes such as Simplicity, eternity, immutability, and impassibility. James Dolezal's first popular level book, All That Is in God, Evangelical Theology, and the Challenge of Classical Christian Theism, argues that many evangelical and Reformed theologians have abandoned classical Christian theism in favor of mutualism. And he also names names. Now, I'm not going to mention them, but I will say this, that John Frame wrote quite a rebuttal against classic Christian theism in Dolezal's book. And that broke my heart. But when you get into Frame's theology, he's, he believes in a give and take um, relationship between God and man. So check it out yourself. 64. If God is say, he cannot be more than he is. He cannot receive what he does not lack, nor is he served by human hands as if he needed anything. 
What can you give to God that He lacks? Nothing. And this is good news. He says in Job 41.11, Who has given to me that I should repay Him? Theistic mutualism is not consistent with our confession. The next is open theism. You would be surprised. I'm telling you, you will be amazed at how many Reformed theologians at famous Reformed seminaries are writing books about this stuff. It just, it is mind-boggling. It's mind-boggling. Which is why I bring it up. You know, I think it's good for you guys to know. Uh, you may hear, you know, people coming from another church or, uh, you know, another denomination where you might hear something, you go, hmm, theistic mutualism or personalism or... Um, Uh, let me tell you something. Dolezal's book raised a storm in the online Reformed community. People were astounded. I mean, he listed like 18 people, and these are big names, John Frame being one of the biggest. So when John Frame wrote his rebuttal, he says, this guy's got a lot of gall coming up, coming up against us. Then I read Table Talks. Uh, what they thought of Frame's um, article, and they said, "Yeah, but John Frame's, you know, got a, la a lot of wavels coming against all the creeds and confessions. You know, there's other those other things. So, so I don't I don't know. There are some checks, uh, but um, I don't I don't. One of the things that is startling is. People are always looking for novel theology. They're looking for something that they can, it's an ori my original idea, and they write a book. And the next thing you know, I mean, I think some, like I think Wayne Grudem. Uh, let me talk about Grudem in a minute. 65, open theism, circa mid-1990s is the view that God's foreknowledge of future events is limited and that God sometimes changes his mind in the face of unforeseen circumstances brought about by his creatures. They posit that God has left the future open. That's why it's called open theism. Even he does not know the future exhaustively because the future has not yet happened. Publishing from open theist appears to have dried up, but apparently the view itself remains alive and growing within some pockets of evangelicalism. They would say that God's love trumps his justice, that he is not immutable, omnipresent, and definitely not impossible. And I saved the etern eternal submission of the Son for the last, because this is one of those which is ongoing and ongoing and ongoing. And I'm going to start out with 66. All biblical passages that speak of the Father as greater than the Son are to be understood as a relation between the Father and the Son in His flesh. Add extra. Christ to the God-man. As the Athanasian Creed says of the Son, He is equal to the Father as touching His goodhead, Godhead and inferior to the Father as touching His manhood. 67. 
But in recent years, a debate has emerged among conservative evangelicals over a novel and recent doctrine known as the eternal submission of the Son, ESS. Some people say, well, I don't believe in that. I believe in EFS, the eternal functional sword subordination, where the eternal relations of authority, submission. And one of the reasons this is important is because Wayne Grudem is one of the, the main people talking about this. And his systematic doctrine has sold a half a million copies. So this stuff is everywhere. I brought up Wayne Grudem's name in Sunday school a couple of weeks ago. I had two guys come up to me and say, what are you saying about Wayne Grudem? I'm telling you, throw his book away. Is that, is that too harsh, Tim? Is that too harsh? Are you even listening back there? James Dolezal. I'm telling you, Tim, I can give you five articles. Yeah, throw his book away, man. Well, I can tell you this. I ain't touching frame with a 10-foot pole. I don't care how good he is on other stuff. He soured it for me. But, <laughs> all right. And this is why I want to teach this class, because there is so much bad stuff out there. And I've seen books that the men's group and the women's ladies were reading, and I'm going, I've had the temptation just to go in there and say, these guys are promoting doctrinal error. But I don't want to be, you know, the turd in somebody's punch bowl. It's... No, I know, I should have been. Okay, so at the center of this dispute, 68, is the question of how we are to understand scriptural teaching regarding the nature of the Son's eternal ad intra relationship to the Father. Is the obedience of the Son to the Father limited merely to the incarnation, or does it also extend to the Son's eternal relationship of the Father? 69. ESS proponents say that the Father relates to the Son because he has paternal authority ad intra and that the Son relates to the Father in a mode of submission, ad intra. They say authority and submission distinguish. In other words, these are the distinctions. Okay? 
the father's authority and the son's submission. In other words, they say the distinct property of the son is submission, and the distinct property of the father is headship of authority. That is how they say we can distinguish persons in the one God. One has authority, one submits. You know, and one of the sad things is that those who support the eternal submission of the Son typically uh, use the claimed eternal hierarchical relationship between the Father and Son as a basis for wives' submission to their husbands. They would say, they would say equal ontologically, but look, we're, we're just like the, don't compare anything. Nothing compares to the Trinity. It's a, it was bad to begin with, but man, these guys will not let go of it. Okay, 70. Eternal sub sub subordination of the Son is untrue and unbiblical, and it has dangerous implications for the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of Trinity, and indeed, the doctrine of salvation. It also is unfaithful to the early creeds, particularly the Nicene, the Athanasian, and the Chalcedon creeds. It is also unfaithful to the Protestant confessions of the 16th and 17th century, notably the 39 Articles, the Westminster Confession, and the Second Helvetic Confession. Any questions? That's it. Yeah. Unbegottenness, begottenness, and procession. That's ad intra. That Those are the distinctions. Yeah. Well, Tim? Hmm. He would not allow us to Did he say it deity? I know he says er when he means air, but You know, I know one of the things that I've recently become aware of was that thing John Owen said, that the divinity of Christ did not talk to the human nature of Christ. It was all Holy Spirit. And that was that is not common, but there, uh, I think Augustine is one of those who promotes that. And, uh, you know, I just had always thought that, you know, in his in his role as mediator, it was just totally his human. But occasionally, you see the divinity peeking out. I thought, 
John Owen would say, no, man, it's all the Holy Spirit. But, you know, those are, that's not one I'm going to get too upset about. Okay, here's the punchline, number 71. You can know everything I've just taught and not know God in a saving way. John Calvin says, because God dwells in accessible light, Christ must become our intermediary. Hence he calls himself the light of the world and elsewhere the way, the truth, and the life. For no one comes to the Father except through him because he alone knows the Father and afterward the believers to whom he wishes to reveal him. To know God is to know Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And I'll tell you, I have seen orthodox dudes, even elders and deacons in this church, turn away from their faith in Jesus. Man, it's... Um, hmm? Oh, yeah. Clark Pinnock, yeah. Okay, we made it through the lesson tonight when you got five minutes left. Any questions on anything? Do you? Yes? Well, I'm going to tell you the truth. I I was at the I was at the park with my granddaughter yesterday, and she was looking for a four-leaf clover. And I said, "Yeah, but what about a three-leaf clover? You know what this stands for?" <laughs> I mean, I'm guilty of the, but you have to introduce it somehow. And um, yeah, I I agree. But uh, my idea is I have had a time to kind of explain the Trinity. Oh, they like the same Jesus. That's because they both have the first My granddaughter goes to a Christian school and they have all the kids learning one plus one plus one equals one. But that's like apples and oranges though. I mean, that's, there's nothing in creation like it. That's, it's, I mean, I. <laughs> Any other questions, comments? It is. It's totally. That's what I've been trying to do. Is exactly I'm, what you did. You did very well. 
second, I mean, but that's it. it there's no way, like, you know, tomorrow morning you can ask me a very particular question about all this. I may not be able to bring it up, but that's you have to go back to it. But you said yourself, if you go back to study, go back to see this. Yeah. Well, you know, Tim, uh, one of the uh, complaints that theistic mutualists have is that our God is abstract and ethereal and unrelatable. Yes, he's transcendent. I'm sorry. But people... Well, it's called scholasticism. Yes. <coughs> He's my idol, man. Don't call him that. I'm sorry, it's in the confession. If you think that, then... Yeah, yeah. All right. Sure. Anthropomorphisms and anthropopathisms. Theistic mutualists would say when God said he was grieved that he had made man, we say that's an anthropopathism. Theistic mutualists say no. God was really grieved and he was sorry. He repented that he had made man. And I'm going, that's just kind of the difference, you know. And I'm talking about reformed guys that are saying that too. Okay, we got to close. I need to volunteer to close in prayer.